and I think it's just people understanding us because I think ringers have been a bit keen on hiding if I'm brutally honest we like we like doing what we do and not you know being that accountable sometimes or we'd like to be under the radar and I think if we stay like that we're doomed Hi, welcome to the Fun With Bells podcast, where I, Kathy Booth, interview novices and some of the most famous ringers in the world as they reveal the mysteries of this heard but often hidden art. My guest today is Mark Regan, who is the ringing master at Worcester Cathedral. He has rung about 2,400 peals. And since living in Worcester, he has installed two new rings of bells in the city and has opened up several unringables in the diocese. He is the diocesan bell advisor for the Worcester Diocese. For many years, he was the steeplekeeper and church warden at St Mary Le Beau in Cheapside. And when living in Leighton Buzzard, he also restored the bells twice. Mark's latest project has been installing a ring of bells in a new arts building in the Christopher Whitehead Language College in Worcester. Hi, Mark. Hi there, Cathy. For someone who hasn't visited, can you describe the ringing and teaching facilities at Worcester Cathedral? Well, Worcester Cathedral, as everyone will know, is one of the most beautiful cathedral towers in the country. You see it at the backdrop of the cricket ground. And it also contains the best ring of bells in the country, but naturally I'm a bit biased there. And there are 5812. They're absolutely magnificent. But over the past really 50 years or more, there'd be no history of teaching at the cathedral for two reasons. Firstly, the bells are quite hard to teach on. And it was just felt that good ringers would turn up. And we thought that wasn't a a viable way of thinking about the future. And we had to think about succession. So we thought as cathedrals are centres of teaching, that's part of their role in the church, we could build a teaching centre. Now, we're really lucky that underneath the great ringing room, and remember the rope circle at Worcester is 15 feet across, so it gives you an, an idea of how big the room is. Underneath the ringing room, there's a clock room. And we designed two dumbbells this was about 12 or oh no 11 years ago we designed these two dumbbells and they're the biggest dumbbells anywhere the wheels are five feet in diameter they're weighted with uh, railway bed plates and a lot of people said it won't work and we all found that really motivating when people say to us something won't work so we built these dumbbells in what is now the teaching center we had to go through a very complicated cathedral planning process a bit like um, church of england planning process but the cathedrals is a bit harder and the dumbbells are made locally by an engineering firm called nds where one of our ringers works and he's an agricultural blacksmith and we just fudged our way through it because we didn't really know what we were doing but we knew we wanted to have some equipment to teach. Some people said, why don't you teach somewhere else? And that is a fairly good argument. But if you teach somewhere else, they'll probably want to ring somewhere else. And we wanted to teach in the cathedral. And we had a fantastic relationship with the King's School next door, where the headmaster, Tim Keyes, was a ringer. So everything sort of came together at the same time. And we taught a lot of young ringers and realised we needed more dumbbells. So now we've got eight they're all linked to Abel software and you can do absolutely anything. And one of the key things about these teaching centres is they're not just there for bell handling. They're there. You can do everything. So we teach people how to handle a bell. Someone can be learning Bob Double. Someone can be ringing Cambridge Minor. Someone can be ringing Bristol Maximus. And it's just this great big play pit. And 
the thing that I really like about it is that you can have eight people learning different things at the same time. So you don't have the queue, which you normally have at a practice night on tower bells. And the unusual thing with our dumbbells is you can see them. So they're just above you and they have the wheels have like a bell motif on them, a shape of a bell. So when we get into this mad lexicon we have in bell ringing, like on the balance, when it's up, when it's down, things like that, don't hit the stay, you can actually see the bell moving in relation to the rope. Because if you look at ringing from a sort of different lens, you're controlling a fast-moving piece of metal to split second accuracy using a very long springy rope that disappears through a hole in the ceiling. That's quite a lot to explain to someone who's brand new because bells are the only musical instruments I think you perform on you can't see. So we built it. We uh, got better at it as we put the last dumbbells in. It's a big play pit for us. A lot of people come and use it. And I'd really love to see people coming from all over the country to visit. And the best thing that happened after that was the Adelaide ringers came to talk to us and they've copied it. And I think their iteration's better. And now, of course, there's one at St. Peter Mancroft, Norwich, and I think that's better than ours. So there's an awful lot to do with this sort of equipment. So just to confirm, where the dumbbells, they're underneath the normal bells, aren't they? They're in a room. It's a massive tower, and the tower's 211 feet. The the crossing, uh, the, the nave chancel crossing is 70 feet up, and that's the floor of the teaching centre. Now, Worcester Cathedral is quite a thin tower and very tall. So when it, the cathedral was restored in the 1870s, Lord Grimthorpe and Gilbert Scott put a big wooden structure inside the tower, and that's called the wigwam. So there's two towers, effectively. So there's a teaching centre. About 20 feet up, there's the ringing room floor, which is really a gallery suspended in the tower. Then there's a carillon room, and then there's the belfry. So the rope draft at Worcester is 60 feet. It's an incredibly big place. And the teaching centre is also a public space because when the tower is open to the public, because you know, the view from the top is fantastic, ten or 11,000 visitors go through the teaching centre every year. So we've got a great big exhibition, which HLF paid for when we did the project uh, St Martin's in the Corn Market. And that tells a story of bells and bell casting and ringing and the towers in Worcester. So Often when we're teaching in the summer, when the towers open, the public come through and engage and see what we're doing. And you can't really do that when you're ringing tower bells because, you know, you're sort of in the moment, in the zone. But when we're teaching, people come and talk. And actually, that is some ways more, it's more interesting to see something being taught than something being done when you're all very good at it. And if somebody's listening to this and they say, oh, I'd like to see that, um, when is it open and, and how would they get involved with, with having a go on one of your dumbbells? It's very easy. If you go on to the web, worcesterbells.org.uk or worcesterbells.co.uk will find us or just type in Worcester Bells in Google and you get us. We've got quite a good website. Just contact us that way and quite easy, easy. And all our peel ringing is advertised on our website as well. So people can come and listen to our ringing. And one of the things we like to do at Worcester is fix up ringing when there's cricket being played at New Rogues. It just adds to the atmosphere. Now I want to move on to steeplekeeping. I haven't spoken to a steeplekeeper in the podcast so far, so I'm very intrigued to know what's the, what does a steeplekeeper do? A steeplekeeper looks after the bells, keeps them maintained because they you've got this we've got this fantastic musical instruments. 
normally hung in really good frames and fittings, but they can easily, so easily become derelict, become neglected. You know, bells get all struck. They're not looked after. Uh, wheels break, ropes break. And there, there's, I think, 6,000 churches in the country with bells uh, out of the 16,000 churches in the in the country. And unless the bells are rung, they soon they soon become derelict. And as a diocesan bell advisor, I often have to go up and look at towers and bells. And I went up to another a tower recently, and the frame was just full of twigs pushed into the louvers by jackdaws. Oh, goodness. So two of the bells were quite difficult to ring. So I got into it where, uh, when I lived in Leighton Buzzard because we restored the bells ourselves, worked with uh, Alan Hughes and the Whitechapel Bell Foundry. That was in 1984, gosh, a long time ago. And we restored this ring of bells and I loved it. It was just like giant Meccano to me, really, and playing with these fantastic instruments and just seeing how they worked. And then just a few months later, some people set fire to the church and the whole thing burnt down. So uh, that was a bit that was a bit sad. However, it was one of the best experiences in my life because the church was badly damaged and I was lucky to work on the church committee that rebuilt it. And so I, I watched stonemasons work, glaziers, carpenters, steeplejacks, organ builders, and of course, bell founders. And Taylor's cast us a fantastic 3,500 weight 12, and that replaced a 2,400 weight 10 because I wanted to put in something that was bigger and better. And so we worked with Taylor's to put in the bells. So I just got sort of fascinated by it. And then at St. Mary Le Beau, I did a lot of work there because the bells were put in after the war and they weren't rung much, I think mainly because one of the vicars there in the 70s wasn't all that keen. And I worked in Fleet Street at that time and I got as well as the, the college youths appointed me to be steeplekeeper at St Mary Le Beau, but I got quite involved with the church. Then I became a church warden and just persuaded the PCC that we got invested in these bells. So Whitechapel came and did lots of work on them, and we just turned them into what I think are one of the best twelves in the country. And now they're rung a lot, and that tradition continues. But I think as custodians of these of this fantastic heritage it's not just change ringing we're custodians of it's also the instruments themselves so we have a duty of care so um there's a lot going on in ringing uh, obviously the bell founders and bell hangers are active you've got a lot of really good people out there however there's a lot of work that just falls under their radar and as we all know a lot of bells aren't rung anymore and neglect soon takes over an interesting example is the bells at Hanley that Simon Linford was involved at. I think they're being moved to Stafford now. I think I rang there in 1977 or 76. And then Simon published some pictures in the ringing world and they were completely derelict. It just shows how quickly rot can take over. So I think steeplekeeping is important. And also if you're teaching ringers, they need to understand how bells work. So that's important. and. Oh, we've done all sorts of interesting things at Worcester. We, we put in the first wooden clapper. Well, they're, they're not really new because they used to be used a few hundred years ago. So we joined the staple of a clapper to the ball of a clapper with an ash shaft because a lot of people thought that SG clappers, Freud or graphite clappers, didn't work all that well. They hit the bell too hard. And everyone said, oh, it's going to fail. It's going to break. So we rang a peel. The first time it was rung was a peel, and it's fantastic. And 
all the bell hangers and bell founders make wooden clappers now. And that's down to one brilliant man called Jim Wheeler, who is now in his 80s, who is still a Worcester ringer. And he said, you wouldn't use a pickaxe with a metal handle. So why don't we put a, a wooden shaft in a clapper? And if somebody's thinking, maybe I could be a staple a staple keeper, staple keeper, yeah. sorry. Staple keeper, um, yeah. Staple keeper. What skills would they need in order to do it? Common sense. Right. <laughs> um, it's very, I'm, I'm not an engineer, but it's very basic engineering. Talk to other people. Never work in a tower on your own, ever, ever, ever. Learn how to splice a rope. Learn how to tighten up nuts and bolts. Learn how to centre clappers. Make sure pulleys turn round. Pulleys are so important for a bell to go well. Use polypropylene, modern ropes. Use modern top ends. Keep wheels treated. Paint everything with rust inhibitors so things don't get rusty. And keep the birds out because pigeon mess is so damaging and also it's very unhealthy. So things like that also always work with your pcc so they know what you're doing so the parochial church council of course own the bells ringers don't so always work with the pcc or in my case with um, the cathedral chapter you have in your background a lot of different projects what skills are required to manage all those different projects my imagination gets the better of me sometimes think oh yeah we'll do that um (laughs) i like doing new things and I like new things in ringing. And Leighton Buzzard inspired me because we lost an old-fashioned ring of 10. And there was a big, oh, we've got to put them back as they were. And I thought, no, that is so boring because we have to evolve. And I like ringing on 12 bells. So the insurance paid for 10 of the bells. And a, a ringer who sadly died a few years ago paid for three extra bells. So that got me into it. And then let's think, let's think, let's think. I did up a lot of bells in Bedfordshire and obviously did St. Mary Le Beau. And I just loved it when people have done innovative projects. And then the Swan Tower in Perth. I mean, I've not been, I've been to Perth, but not since it's been built. But I think that project is totally inspiring. And it winds me up that the best advertisement for bell ringing is in Perth, Western Australia, and not in this country. So there's a bit of background to to motivation i like i suppose i'm sort of quite outgoing and i sort of you get to know people in the church and in the community and the project at old st martin's came about that there was a at the top of the tower there's a 13 1400 ring of six they haven't been rung for over 100 years and they're not all that good really and we could have done something with them but i thought no let's do something a bit different so i wanted a nursery for all our very young ringers so we put in a 600 rate ring of 10 and that tower belongs to our young ringers. And so that that's the purpose. You have to have a purpose. To, there has to be a reason why you're doing it. You can't, you can't just do it to put in your ring of bells. There has to be a reason why. So that's how that one came about. And the project at Barbon was a bit of an accident because the bells at Halewood in Liverpool became available and they're a classic uh, 1929 Taylor Ring of Eight, about 10 hundred weight. They're absolutely gorgeous. And we'd just done Old St. Martin's and the bells came on the market and I spoke to the Caltech Trust and Dave Kelly said, what do you think? And I went, oh, okay. So I phoned up uh, my friend Bernard Taylor, who is has been a massive benefactor for giving bells and projects and said, Bernard, I'd like to buy this Ring of Bells. And he said, okay, have you got a tower? And I went, no, that's the next phone call. 
<laughs> so, and I phoned up the vicar of Barbon, who he was a very good friend. He's now left the church. And I said, Stuart, would you like to ring a bell? And he said, yeah, let's do it. But the condition is, Mark, we don't pay for any of it. You've got to raise the money yourselves. So a lot of grant applications to local trusts and charities. And the key thing is to get support from people. Like our, our bishop, who is brilliant, John Inge, has always supported the Bell Project because he thinks ringing is great for the Church of England. So that's why I like doing it. So that's a long answer. I think it's sort of enthusiasm and patience I've not got a lot of, I have to be honest, and getting people to work with you. You have to get a lot of support. And not just bell ringers, lot, a lot of people to be on your side. And how do you do that? You talk to people. And I, I love visitors coming to see us ring and watch us ring. So I don't like closed doors in churches. And ringers are very unusual because we, we ring in this very protected environment. Thick stone walls protect us from the audience. And a small door is the only access. And it's a sort of door people don't normally go through. So we've made films of ringing. We've opened our doors. We do all sorts of tours come up. We invite schools up, things like rotary clubs, farming groups, history groups, uh, scouts, guides, you name it, we've had people up. And part of our culture at Worcester is that we're open and welcoming and it's very safe. And all our ringers are used to engaging with visitors. And we're lucky we've got a lot of space. We've got the teaching centre. We've produced a lot of literature. So that's what we do at Worcester. And then I often go out and give talks to various groups. And often I go around because I'm on the DAC again. I talk to the clergy a lot about their bells too. So outreach, outreach and open our doors. I mean, if you think about ringing, these stone walls protect us from the thousands of people who hear us. And probably we don't even think about thousands of people hearing us. But imagine you're in uh, the Albert Hall and there's 12 bell ropes hanging down. There's 5,000 people watching you. The contestants or the competitors in the 12 bell or something walk onto the stage and perform a piece of ringing. It'll be quite nerve wracking, wouldn't it? But that, that is actually what we all do every week because if you live in a village, it'll be hundreds of people hear you. If you live in a city, thousands of people hear us. And I think we have a duty to think about that. And that's that's one thing we do. Because, And you think of the great state occasions. You think of Westminster Abbey of St. Paul's, you know, for weddings and funerals. You'll always hear the bells ringing, won't you? Mm, mm. And one fantastic thing happened here, which to me was a privilege, because obviously Worcester has a lot to do with cricket. We had memorial services here for Tom Graveney, Graham Dilly, and also Basil Dolivera. And you know, think about how important Basil Dolivera was in the apartheid thing with cricket. We rang before and after the service. The cricket club asked us to ring, and our bells were broadcast on the news to the cricketing nations all around the world. And I thought that was just great outreach. That's great. Um, and what do you think about the future of bell ringing? What, and how can we shape that? This is a quick break to thank our sponsors, the Association of Ringing Teachers, ART. You can find out more at bellringing.org, where there are resources to support your ringing, to find out how to learn to ring or to learn to teach. Now back to the episode. It's in our hands. 
there's two things which I think are massively important. Our engagement with the Church of England has never been more important than it is now. A lot of people will have picked up that there's, a, the, there's a, a, a very powerful and successful evangelical wing of the Church of England, which is great. However, the evangelical church isn't massively keen on bells because it's just not part of how they do church, and that's fine. So unless we're engaged with the church and there is dialogue, remember the church own the bells, we don't. That's such an important thing. I think I just wish we'd understand what that means. Unless we're better engaged and also think about the future of our, of our church building because they're not all sustainable. So, you know, we hear of very occasionally a church gets sold to be turned into flats and there's a ring of bells up there. Or in Oxford at St Cross, uh, the church closed, Balliol College took it over and they've sealed the bells. They won't be rung again while the college use it. Now, sooner or later, that's going to happen to somewhere really big. And if you think of all the rings of bells in the, in the many Victorian churches in the industrial parts of, of, of the country, if they're not rung, oh, well, we'd close those, sell those because they're worth quite a bit of money. And I think sooner or later, a big ring of bells will get sold for those reasons. Then I think we might wake up to it. I'm, I am, perhaps I'm being a bit doom and gloom, but I just think we're, I think we're sleepwalking into this and we need to really engage better and think, well, which churches are at risk? Now, Historic England have a heritage risk register. I think we should have a church bells at risk register. Hanley was an example where the first attempt to move Hanley bells, the because they were a World War One memorial, the local conservation groups and their MP, who is Tristram Hunt, who now runs the VNA, stopped the bells moving. So they would have been sealed and not heard. Now they're going to Stafford and they'll be heard again. That's good. So definitely with the church and then um, our outreach as bell ringers. We, we, I mean, the fact we're doing this, uh, we can use social media. Alison Everett's doing great work doing Twitter. We need to do that. We need to engage and in, let people understand what, how we contribute to the, uh, the, the, the cultural heritage, the, the, the soundscape of England, all those things that make ringing special because – we're heard and not seen, we're heard and not known. And a few, a couple of years ago, a journalist from the FT came to talk to us at Worcester Cathedral about ringing. You know, I think, I think we're the only bell ringers ever to be in, in the Financial Times. And she, she met us and she met us and she talked to everyone. She came to the pub with us and said, I had no idea. I hear this fantastic sound, it's Englishness, it's church, but all of you, I mean, the diversity of our jobs, the age range, it's male and female, it's wacky, everyone's very teamy, everyone's very supportive. And things, you know, if you bring ringing into school, you've got maths, you've got music, you've got history, you've got teamwork. And if we engage with schools, you can do something there. And I think it's just people understanding us because I think ringers have been a bit keen on hiding, if I'm brutally honest. We like, we like doing what we do and not you know, being that accountable sometimes or we'd like to be under the radar. And I think if we stay like that, we're doomed. Uh, but there's so there is so much good stuff going on at the moment. It's great. I mean, they're fantastic projects. And just think what the... Young Ringers event has done the uh, the contest. I mean, that past seven or eight years just been fantastic for ringing. And I'm I'm talking to you now from BBC Hereford in Worcester, and my friend Kate Justice, who presents a Sunday show, 
will always do something about ringing when it's relevant. And when she launched her new evening program, it was launched from the ringing room at Worcester Cathedral. I mean, what? And that's how we do engagement. And I want to ask you a bit about your role models, your <laughs> ringing role models. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, them? I mean, I've had a most fantastic time in ringing. I was taught by a man called Jim Yates in a place called Ampton in Bedfordshire. And when I was 12 or 13, I think I had a hobby every week. And I went ringing and I was fascinated. And my mum said to me quite recently, I can remember when you came back, Mark, you just obviously found something that was special. And Jim, Jimbo, as we called him, was just an inspiring teacher. And he just taught, he taught a lot of people to ring. But one great thing about him, he wasn't one of those teachers that wouldn't let his pupils be better than him. And I remember that. And his, his daughter was at my school. We were in the same class. And we rang appeal until Jim died a couple of years ago. So my friends came along. And we rang for Jim. And I saw Judith, who I hadn't seen for about ooh, 45 years. So fantastic. So that starts with him. Then a chap called Bob Churchill, who rang just down the road in a place called Husband Crawley, who was our milkman. And he took me ringing everywhere. And Bob is now oh, 93 or 94, and he's still ringing in Bedfordshire. And then I was really lucky because um, I, I went to a place called St Paul's Bedford, and that was run by Stephen Ivan, who um, was equally terrifying and inspiring and probably one of the cleverest ringers I've ever met. And he sort of picked me up and made a half-decent ringer of me, actually. And with a few of us, another ringer called Stephen Stanford and someone called Jeremy Piran, we, we, we all rang together. Perhaps right time in the right place, or I was a bit pushy, but Stephen was just, he, how could you put it? He always pushed us, he always pushed us quite hard, pushed us quite so. Uh, I rang my first peel uh, in February, and a couple of months later, I'd rung a peel of Cambridge Royal. That, that's how he inspired us. And then um, I went to university at Warwick, and uh, obviously I'm near Birmingham. So Rod Pipe and Peter Border, just great friends and fantastic ringers. Peter taught me how to ring heavy bells. I wanted to be a heavy bell ringer, and it was a bit like you 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 have your football or cricketing heroes and you think you'll never meet them and when i read the ringing world i saw all these fantastic names and i met them and they became my friends isn't that fantastic and peter peter inspired me to do all sorts of things uh, ringing heavy bells and i was really lucky i i rang the tenor at liverpool single-handed to appeal about 20 years ago and I think I was the second person to do it. And he phoned me up to say, well done, boy. He always called me boy. And then Rod Pipe, well, a legend, you know, um, just inspiring during Birmingham. And of course, his son, David, equally talented and brilliant. And we're all family friends. So my heroes are also my friends. Uh, so, oh, the, the things we did in Birmingham are fantastic. And the hardest thing I've ever done in ringing was give the tribute at Rod's funeral. A fantastic honour. Absolutely fantastic thing to do. And totally nerve-wracking. And that was typical of Rod, pressure right up to the end. And But, but so many others. I mean, my best friend David Brown, just, just a fantastic bell ringer. But what I love seeing now is there's a generation of ringers coming through who have so much talent. And 
I've seen my long length records broken, which is fantastic. So people are always pushing up the bar. So the heroes aren't only the ones who are in the past, but you can see the new heroes coming along. People like Tom Hinks and Jack Page, just phenomenal talent. Absolutely phenomenal. So long may it continue. So heroes heroes aren't aren't just people in the past. There are people in the future as well. Mark, is there anything else that you wanted to cover that we haven't covered? There is. I think I think one of the one what ringing ringing does need a lot of change, and I think we need to get past the institutions which are belong to the past to move forward. And I'm going to say this. I mean, ringing associations and so forth, they have to change because they're just these boundaries, these county boundaries, Austin boundaries aren't relevant anymore. The world's got very, I mean, I have more in common with ringers in Adelaide than I do 20 miles down the road in Worcestershire. So I think that's an important thing, how we, we, we have too many boundaries and I think they, they stop us moving forward. And I think the next thing that's really important in ringing is serious leadership and just leading large groups of people and leading the engagement with the church, the engagement with schools, the engagement with the communities. And that's a massive responsibility. And I think it's starting to happen because that's one of the great benefits of social media that we are hooked up more and people are sharing good practice. But it will always be slightly controversial because I think, because ringing is so based in tradition, it's sometimes sensitive, oversensitive to change. So that's that's a, that's something I think about a lot. And what do you think can be done? Oh, well, hopefully, this is, hopefully I get it right. Um, we have a fantastic band at Worcester Cathedral. It's about, I think, 40. I can never quite count everybody. And we have a lot of young ringers and they're very talented. And my duty of care is for them to do things and it's not just ringing peals or ringing heavy bells. It's about leading people, teaching ringing. And every other week, I don't run the practice. One of the other ringers, they do it. They may come to a meeting with me about something with the cathedral. So they're seeing the sort of scope of the job because I think 20% of my time is in the ringing room. The rest is outside. And so I don't worry about succession at all. So I'm quite, um, that is a fantastic place to be always pushing always pushing to do more and our band has a set of shared values and that's a very teamy thing so firstly the ringing room is safe and then it's welcoming and everyone puts we before i and that's a value set which which i think can be adopted everywhere it's about we that's um that's quite radical i think you know to to to, to look at it like that we've got a most delightful young ringer called Sam Trigger, who was, who was 10 a couple of weeks ago. And about a year ago, he, I found a little note at the bottom of the tower where the tower stewards were saying, I loved your bells. Uh, Sam Trigger, I think he was aged eight. So I thought, well, that's really sweet. And then his mum and dad got in touch with us. And Sam Trigger, now aged 10, strapped Liverpool Cathedral tenor with me at the Young Ringers competition when we rang at the cathedral. And so I asked his mum, said, has he landed yet? And she said, oh, about, about, about Thursday or Friday, he might come down to work. <laughs> um, but it's, it's moments like that. 
that is doable. Now, we, if we can teach ringing, if we can have a teaching centre at Worcester Cathedral and do what we do at Worcester, you can do anything anywhere. I think that's what I'm saying. There are only 20 towers with a tenor over 40 hundred weight. There are only 150 towers with 12 bells. So I'm living in quite a rarefied world and it's a real privilege and it's it's an enormous responsibility. Now, if that 10-year-old boy can go to Liverpool Cathedral and but he wasn't just on his own he was with loads of other young ringers having a chance to ring on this great heavy ring of bells and all credit to Matt and Len at Liverpool Cathedral and David Hull for what they did that was just fantastic and that was inspiring so they'll all, all go away with fantastic memories and they'll have this belief yeah I can ring there it's not somewhere special. And they come and ring at Worcester Cathedral because our, our young ringers aren't phased by Worcester Cathedral. I mean, they're really hard to ring. They're just not phased. So I think that's how it's, it's supposed to be empowering. That's the idea anyway. Apart from the towers that you regularly ring at, what are your favourite ring of bells and why? It has to be St Mary Le Beau mm-hmm. and then, and then Leighton Buzzard. However, tomorrow I'm going down to a place called Coombe Flory, which is in Somerset near Taunton. And there are lovely Taylor Six. And it's where Evelyn Waugh is buried. He's one of my favourite writers. So again, I just like going to unusual places like that. But there are so many fantastic bells in this country. And I think we are, it is such a privilege to have access to all these fantastic places that, you know, we they're, they're all favourites. And if they're not in good nick do them up if they're really awful recast them if they're really historic keep them so all of it all of it good and what remarkable things have happened to you that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't taken up bell ringing oh the people yes without a doubt the friendships the community the esprit core okay we have our ups and downs sometimes that's very rare but the enormous support you have and my children wouldn't be here if it weren't for bell ringing so that's quite important it is it is it is people i mean the friendships we talked about heroes earlier i mean just massive people in my life absolutely massive and they still are and i see it continue it's always people always people thank you to my guest mark regan for this wide-ranging discussion including how to steeple keep about his bell-ringing heroes, and for insights on how to run successful large bell projects. More information, photographs and links can be found in our show notes at www.funwithbells.com. I'm Cathy Booth. This podcast was put together by a team. Special thanks go to Anne Tansley-Thomas and John Gwynne, Leslie Belcher, Sue Hall, Nick Boyd, Rose Nightingale and the Society of Cambridge used for the recording of their ringing. There are openings for other roles within the production team. Contact me at funwithbellspodcast at gmail.com if you are interested. If you are in Britain and are interested in learning to ring, then please go to ringingteachers.org or for handbell ringers, hrgb.org.uk. Both websites have links to help you get started. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Fun With Bells. 
Don't forget to tell others that you can listen to this podcast for free. It's available from any podcast directory or from the website funwithbells.com. Next on Fun With Bells, we'll be talking to Nigel Taylor, who was the bell production manager at the Whitechapel Bell Foundry. (laughs) 